The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Saturday, December the 10th, and you're very welcome to the End of the Week Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are political editor Pat Leahy, and we're also joined by current affairs editor Arthur Beasley. Arthur, you're very welcome. Thank you, Hugh. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, read with great interest your story yesterday. It was our lead in the Irish Times on Friday, um, because as people know, it's just a week to go before Leo Varadkar becomes Taoiseach. And your very interesting story was about the standards in public office, SIPO's uh, investigation into his leaking of that confidential document to a medical friend. Uh, it was the subject of, of a Garda investigation. It was considered by the Director of Public Prosecutions, but it was also considered by SIPO as to whether it was in breach of, of their regulations. And you got hold of some documents within SIPO. We should say at the outset that this issue was considered by five members of the standards in public office team. One other member had recused themselves um, because of a potential conflict of interest. And it split 3-2. And the interesting question is, who were the two and what did they think of this? Well, this decision, Hugh, uh, was made public by the Commission a month ago. It followed on a meeting that took place in October. And at that meeting, uh, there was this split 3-2. And it was the first decision in the 21-year history of the SIPO that was not taken by unanimity. So it is certainly a break with all precedent in the institution. At the time, the SIPO acknowledged that it was not a unanimous decision, that it was a split decision. And the essence of the decision was that following on the three complaints against Leo Varadkar over the leak that it considered, the decision was that they would not be proceeding to a preliminary inquiry. Now, that's the first stage in a process that could lead to a full-blown statutory inquiry. So pretty serious stuff. But what they had to decide in the first instance was whether there should be a preliminary inquiry at all. And the majority decision was that there shouldn't be, but we never knew who the dissenters were. And information disclosed to me via the Freedom of Information Act shows that the two dissenters were two of the most senior independent officials in the state. And that's Seamus McCarthy, who's the controller and auditor general, and Ger Deering, who is the ombudsman. So these are quite a, quite serious individuals, and their views as stated in private statements to the SIPO are really quite cutting in as much as they say that there should have been a preliminary inquiry, not even a full-blown inquiry, a preliminary inquiry. The fact is, the matter is now closed, but we do know at this point that it was certainly not the slam dunk that some people would have said uh, it was when Leo Varadkar claimed vindication on foot of the SIPO's decision. So just to be clear, these these two dissenters, they are among the foremost officers of the state guarded with protecting the public interests, uh, the public finances, taxpayers' money. You know, they are very serious individuals. Well, they are. and they, I mean, they, their role essentially is 
to be independent of government. The controller and auditor general is nothing if the controller is not independent. Likewise, the ombudsman. It's the ombudsman's job where something has gone wrong in the way people, the government deals with citizens, with individuals. This provides a route for people to make a complaint. And if the ombudsman isn't independent, well, then the system isn't worth anything. So their, their independence is critical. And it's for that reason that they're on the SIPO. And who are the three other individuals who formed the majority in this case? The others are Garrett Sheehan. He is the chairman. He is a retired judge of the Court of Appeal. Previously, he was a judge of the High Court. And then you have Peter Finnegan, who is the clerk of the Dáil, and Martin Groves, who is the clerk of the Shannon. So those three were for not proceeding to a preliminary inquiry. And then you had Deering, the Ombudsman, and McCarthy, the Controller and Auditor General, uh, expressing their objections to that decision in pretty forthright terms in the statements they made. Yes, there are some, the, the, I mean, the documents you published this week under, under Freedom of Information, there's some pretty cutting observations uh, among them. Well, there are. Well, I mean, in the first instance, the Controller and Auditor General, he made a note he said that some of the Tarnish's assertions, and I'm quoting here, represent low-grade evidence at best. And in the case of the Ombudsman, he said that uh, the, the Tarnish was not beyond the reach of the organisation and that conflicts in the statements that he had given at various points in the investigation, they hadn't been resolved by the Tarnish, and those, con- those conflicts were still out there. And uh, the two of them, uh, were not convinced by the Thornish's assertions in his letter to the SIPO that the document he leaked was no longer confidential. They didn't seem to accept that at all. So am I right in saying, uh, Arthur, that there are two key issues here were under consideration? The first was, as you've just described, conflicts between the Thornish's uh, assertion that this was no longer a, a, a confidential document at the time he, he handed it over to his friend Matthew O'Toole, um, and the second issue is whether SIPO was within its rights at all to investigate this matter because the Taunish at the time, Taoiseach, was acting in his capacity at Taoiseach and therefore wasn't subject to uh, to the commission. Is that correct? That, if you like, is the essence of the majority ruling that was handed down in November. And that was based on legal advice. However, we don't have the legal advice. Legal advice is privileged. You can't get it via freedom of information. All that we know is that three sets of legal advice seems to have been considered. Opinions were taken from two senior counsel, Felix McEnery and Owen McCullough, and also from the head of the Legal Services Division in the SIPO. We don't really know where they came down, but certainly the essence of the majority ruling as handed down was that uh, the SIPO didn't really have powers to uh, scrutinise the Taoiseach's actions as he was at the time. Pat, what do you make of all this? I think it's an interesting postscript to that the news of the, the SIPO as it was presented at the time, exoneration of Leo Varadkar, certainly by his allies anyway. And... Arthur's story points out that, you know, some prominent and important members uh, of the body not alone dissented from uh, the the judgment of the body, but wanted their dissent recorded. Um, 
which I, th- I think is significant. I mean, ultimately, I suppose the decision of SIPO is the decision of SIPO, and it has been recorded. Uh, but I think it is uh, a reminder of what was a deeply uncomfortable period in relation to this issue for both Leo Varadkar and for his party. Because while I suppose I always thought, and having spoken to several legal sources about it, I always thought that a a prosecution of Leo Varadkar was unlikely. You know, we can remind ourselves that there was still a period in which the Garda were investigating his actions and a period after that in which the DPP was considering whether or not to launch a prosecution against him. And had the DPP done that, it would have been, you know, it would have been the end, I think, of Varadkar's political career, at least until the conclusion of the trial and probably uh, indefinitely. Um, so that was quite a very fraught period, I think, for him and for his party. The separate process uh, under which Sipo made uh, considered complaints and, and made its decision was perhaps less apocalyptic in its potential outcome, but still had was still highly embarrassing and I think corrosive of Varadkar's authority within uh, his own party. And that was a process, I think, that was progressive over the entire period in which he was under investigation, first by the guards and then by SIPO. And I think that given the questions that periodically float around Fine Gael about Varadkar's judgment, and right now, just a week before he becomes uh, Taoiseach again, I think this is probably a deeply unwelcome story uh, for uh, both Varadkar and, and, and for his party. Can I just follow up with one one further question? Was it clear to everyone else up until this point that the actions of the executive in the form of the Taoiseach could be separated out so clearly from the actions of the Taoiseach as a TD, which are clearly subject to uh, to Zippo? This seems to me to be a quite a convenient shifting of goalposts. I think, you know, one of the defences uh, that Varadkar sought to rely on was that because he was the Taoiseach and because by his actions he had clearly authorised disclosure of this document, then, you know, by, because, he, because he disclosed it, therefore the disclosure was authorised by the highest authority and therefore uh, he couldn't be, uh, couldn't be answerable for it. There's a logic to that. Right. But you can see how the logic might be extendable into areas that would cause uh, that would cause political trouble, because it's a bit like it's a bit like saying les, les et moi, you know, and uh, I, I, I think that I think this defense actually was previously employed by Donald Trump to say that he he could do it because he was the president and therefore practically above the law in these uh, uh, in these respects but we know that's uh, uh, that's not true and you know and i i, th- I think uh, i think richard nixon as well at some point yeah yeah so um, yeah these are not good political examples for leo varadkar to be I drawing on the, on the eve of his second premiership are they i would have thought not 
So yeah, so I you know I just think that's that's another aspect of uh, of this. This was something that his party and Veradkar hoped had been left, you know, behind him uh, this year. And uh, well, Arthur reminds us that it's not entirely. It has um, rather a long political tale, and I think will amplify some of the questions about Veradkar's judgment that you hear Sato Voce from, uh, and sometimes not Sato Voce from uh, from Fine Gaelers. And also on the evidence of, of of your story, Arthur, concern within the highest ranks of the the apparatus of the state, perhaps about the way that this this has been handled when the clock was very loudly ticking down towards this event, which we're going to see uh, in next week, this unprecedented changing of the guard in the in the Taoiseach's office. Um, things needed to be sorted, and they got sorted. A lot of people will look at that. They had to press pause for as long as the Garda was investigating. And then the file was with the DPP. And uh, once it became clear that the DPP would not be prosecuting, they, uh, the case was revived and uh, revived quite quickly. And you had the uh, the issuance of a letter to Leo Varecker on September the 29th, his response coming on October the 3rd, and then the SIPO sitting on the 21st of October uh, to decide that it wasn't going to go ahead. So, I mean, it, they, that's kind of a pretty rapid rapid action in a case, albeit one that had been in abeyance. But there are questions over the over the, the role of the Standards and Public Office Commission because on the face of it, the observations made by both the Controller and Auditor General and the Ombudsman, uh, they in turn questioned the basis on which, for which the SIPO came to its conclusion that it wasn't going to proceed with this preliminary inquiry. And in, in essence, you have before the preliminary inquiry or what might have been a statutory inquiry, you have the commission saying, we've actually had an inquiry and we don't, um, uh, we don't think we need to go any further. And clearly, these two very senior people uh, were not happy with that. And finally, Arthur, can I ask your view on the, the on the question I asked Pat there, I suppose, really, which is that if it is then the case that the executive, which in our political system is is elected and uh, serves at the uh, at the pleasure of the parliament of a parliamentary majority, if its actions are not subject to SIPO, well, then to whom is it subject? Is it just the doll? Is it nobody else? I mean, I was under the perhaps mistaken impression that the Taoiseach and also other members of the executive, so that includes the cabinet as well, that they were subject to SIPO in the same way as every other member of the Dáil and Shannon was. Was that wrong? Well, I think there's a, there's a distinction in the first instance as between what they've said about the Taoiseach and what they might say about in any case involving a minister. But I do think it does raise questions around uh, the operation of what are known as the ethics acts, right, okay? The matter investigated by the guards under criminal law that's entirely separate to this SIPO procedure under the Ethics Acts, right, okay? And SIPO there is essentially, is there to enforce the Ethics Acts, right, okay? And the essence of the statement they made in this case was that they didn't really have jurisdiction when it came to the Taoiseach. And that has yet to be tested, it seems to me, right? The decision stands, right? They're not going to, it seems to me, they're not going to reopen this case Um on, on, unless it's challenged in some way, who knows, right? But it, it does raise questions as to what the limits are of SIPO's jurisdiction in a scenario where the Taoiseach should be 
it seems to me, subject to the ethics acts. I mean, it's the highest political office in the land. The Taoiseach should be uh, subject to a code of conduct, and any code of conduct isn't worth the paper it's written on unless you have someone there to enforce it and to scrutinise and to make sure that the thing has been observed. Do you agree, Pat? I do. Um, and, I mean, we've discussed this on the podcast uh, before, and I've written about it before, that, you know, of all the improvements that could be made to the ethics framework uh, in politics, the single biggest one is the one that SIPO have been asking for, for, I don't know, two decades or something uh, at this stage, which is the power to independently investigate breaches of ethics law where they see it, rather than simply await a complaint by a member of the public or an interested party. And uh, to do that, of course, I think you would have to, you would have to beef up uh, SIPO, you would have to give it additional resources. Perhaps you might have to clarify the law in, uh, in some respects. And then you would expect SIPO to be you know, perhaps more active than it is uh, at present in, uh, in, in policing that whole area of our public life. Right. We're going to take a break now, but we'll be right back after this. And you're welcome back. Uh, Arthur Beasley has left us, no doubt, to go off and find lots of other interesting stories. But in the meantime, uh, Pat is still here with us. Before we move on, Pat, I just want to remind our listeners that we will be running our regular Christmas Ask Me Anything with the politics team uh, over the Christmas period. And please do get your questions uh, in to uh, politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. You really can ask us anything. So really do that. And if you can send them in an audio file, that's even better because we do like to hear your voices. And I also like to hear Pat's voice. Pat, you have still been labouring in the in the salt mines of the North-South project. You're up to your oxters in data um, about the views of citizens North and South about the constitutional future of the island. We have more numbers today. They're they're very interesting. They, they relate to two subjects, which we have discussed uh, on this podcast in the past, but I have, don't really think I've seen uh, data on them before, on the state of public opinion on them. They're um, on one level they're quite technical, on another level they're extremely important. One relates to how detailed a picture should be painted of what a United Ireland would look like before a vote is held on whether a United Ireland is desirable. And the second one relates to two different models of what that United Ireland would look like. Could you take us through some of that? Well, I can, Hugh. I'm happy to do that. But let me uh, just add at the start about the Ask Me Anythings that while uh, listeners are uh, entitled and indeed encouraged to ask us anything, can't guarantee that we will answer absolutely everything. Uh, that might depend on the nature of their questions. But we'll certainly do our best to answer any questions about politics that they send into us. Well, as, as, as the tribune of the listeners in this regard, I'll do my best to force you to answer everything. Okay. <laughs> well, it would be surely shocked me not to wish you well in that, uh, <laughs> that endeavour. So, OK, today's findings, and as listeners will be aware, this is uh, part of a large research project that the Irish Times has undertaken with the Aaron's Project, um, which anyone who's been reading the stuff or has been listening to previous podcasts will know is a collaboration between the Royal Irish Academy and the, the University of Notre Dame. And I've been working with Professor John Gary from Queen's and Professor Brendan 
O'Leary uh, from the University of Pennsylvania on um, on this project, both in in designing it and uh, and in trying to interrogate what the uh, what the results have thrown up and what the data means. Today is we're calling it in almost military fashion is. Uh, is day one of wave two. And what we've concentrated on is the models of a potential United Ireland that might be on offer and uh, and also how much voters want to know about those models in advance of, uh, of any referendums on a United Ireland. So one of the questions that we've asked um, is, is just about that, you know how much how much voters want to know. So, for the purposes of the the research, we have boiled it down to two models of a, a united Ireland. One is an integrated United Ireland in which there is a unity state, and that would essentially mean that Northern Ireland, as a political entity, would cease to exist. The Stormont institutions would be abolished, and there would be a single administration located uh, in, in, in Dublin. The other alternative, which uh, we propose for the purposes of this research, is a devolved United Ireland, where Northern Ireland would be a devolved region, not of the UK as it currently is, but of uh, a United Ireland. In other words, that the Northern political institutions would survive and they would have the powers that they currently have over education and health, uh, policing and, uh, and, uh, and so forth, while ultimate sovereignty would reside with, um, with the government in, uh, and in, in, in Dublin. So, I mean, there are, of course, other models of United Ireland imaginable, but for the purposes of, re- of, of, of the research... And and also, I suppose, as the the product of our discussions as to how, you know, the future might play out. These are the two models that that we have zeroed in on for the purposes of this research. And we did offer, in the course of the research, we did offer uh, the opportunity to uh, any respondents to suggest an alternative model. But the numbers uh, who did so were were tiny, not exactly zero, but certainly uh, considerably less than uh, than one percent. Of, uh, of of respondents. So what we found is that voters in the Republic are much more supportive of an integrated United Ireland. That's the one in which Stormont would be abolished as a single administration in Dublin, while the voters in the, in the North prefer a devolved United Ireland, where Northern Ireland would continue as a devolved region with power over health, policing, uh, and, uh, uh, and so forth. And if you turn that around, because this is one of the things that we've done at various points in the survey, and we look at not just the preference that voters in the two jurisdictions have, but their opposition to, uh, uh, to potential outcomes, we see there's very strong opposition in the North, particularly amongst Northern voters from a traditionally Protestant background, to that integrated United Ireland option. So when you break it down in the north, you see that 70% of voters from a Protestant background uh, in the north say they have a strong opposition to an integrated uh, United Ireland. You ask them a, that, that question that we've discussed 
before as to, you know, potential outcomes and you ask them, you know, uh, what, what their reaction to potential outcomes would be, 20% of the, uh, of the entire electorate in Northern Ireland say they would find it almost impossible to accept an integrated United Ireland that rises to just under a third of all Protestants. That's that's going beyond a level of opposition which says, I wouldn't like it, but I could live with it, to a a, a much more intense level of opposition uh, which says that they would find it almost impossible to to accept. So in, in... they're not, of course, North and South are not, of course, exact mirror images of one another by, by any means. But the general summary is that the South, the South prefers an integrated United Ireland and the North prefers a devolved United Ireland. I don't want to fall into dangerous extrapolation here, but given some of the numbers that we had earlier in the week, which showed that there was a substantial number of people from the Protestant community who would find it, and I quote, almost impossible to accept a united Ireland at all, uh, regardless of the structure, presumably that number feeds quite closely into the people who feel equally strong, strongly about the particular models and abhor the idea of an integrated United Ireland? Yeah, so, of course, we ask a whole set of questions. The the, the numbers, you wouldn't expect to be absolutely consistent, but the sentiment and the rough proportion of voters that share that sentiment, we do notice a consistency of it. And the suggestion, the clear, the best and only clear reading, to my mind, uh, of it is that there is uh, a hard core of voters in the North, amounting to in or about a third of all voters from a Protestant background who are extremely opposed to the idea of, uh, of, of a united Ireland. The opposition to a devolved united Ireland is considerably less. Now, it still amounts to a third of all uh, a, a third of all voters from a Protestant background uh, in the north, but seventy percent of all Protestant uh, background voters in the north uh, voice strong opposition to an integrated United Ireland, whereas just thirty percent of them declare strong opposition to a devolved United Ireland. Now. As we heard from our northern editor Freya McClements earlier in the week, there is a there is a clear difference between the level of engagement with these issues north and south of the border. Uh, not surprisingly, people have thought about the constitutional issue in more detail in the north. In previous podcasts with Professor Brendan O'Leary, we've gone into you know quite a lot of detail about different constitutional models, and people can refer back to those if they like. It is very interesting, and international examples in Germany and in Cyprus and in and in various other. Other places, but I, I suppose, you know, before we get to the, the second question, the question of, of, of painting the picture of this, the, um, the retention of Northern Ireland in its current form, except sovereignty transferring to Dublin and, and away from London, Northern Ireland is not a particularly successful political entity as it stands at the moment, is it? Uh, is it really, you know, is it, an, is, is it an attractive, setting aside the orange and the green and the rest of it, is it really an attractive political proposition to retain it in its current, in its current form? But its current form, I suppose, is dominated by the orange and green structure of its politics, or at least 
the orange and green structure of its politics when the current political dispensation was designed 25 years ago. As we've discussed here before, that structure is now different. And, you know, it's not a binary system now. It's it's a three-part system as between orange, green and whatever colour the alliance, uh, whatever colour the alliance uses, or uh, I, I guess yellow. Um, and, uh, you know, those, the, the, the others, the neithers, the middle ground, whatever you want to call them uh, in, in the north are, as we've seen throughout these surveys, uh, may well be decisive in any future constitutional, um, in any future constitutional votes. And, and, and so, you know, it's hard to overestimate uh, their, their importance. The one thing you do see, going back to your question, uh, particularly in the focus groups uh, that we conducted to accompany this polling research, was a real frustration amongst voters in the North at the dysfunctionality of the political system there. And that comes across again and again uh, in, in the focus groups. But I guess it's a jump from, from that to say, you know, that, that voters might ultimately decide to disband the political entity that is Northern Ireland. It's beyond question that they wanted to work better than it currently works. But whether they would, that would push undecided voters to amongst whom that frustration is particularly acute, whether it would push them to vote to disband the political entity, I guess is 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 a separate question. No, it's a, it, it, it's a fascinating question. We should mention that um, the, the focus groups, which are full of fascinating information, an entirely different way of looking at some of these issues, I think, um, that they are focus groups of what we, we call the persuadables. So they are sort of the swing voters in this, in the, in this mix. And we're also discussing the people who are perhaps the unpersuadables, uh, who are the the hardcore of staunch unionist uh, voters who really, you know, are really unhappy about the idea of a united Ireland. And of course, then when we come to the second question, which we which we published today, which is about painting the picture of what that united Ireland would look like, the really tricky thing, and we've talked about this with Brendan before as well, is how do you paint that picture in advance of a referendum when the people who you are most trying to placate, convert, persuade, will not engage in that in that conversation. How does one paint that picture? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the, the real conundrums, uh, I guess, of the whole question, uh, isn't it? Uh, it seems to me, you know, that the people who wish to bring about uh, Irish unity ha- have two jobs on their hands uh, in the North. Um, I guess we could devote a whole podcast to the job that they have on their hands in, in, in the South, but let's leave that aside. Uh, for now, the jobs they have in the North, it seems to me, are to persuade the persuadables and therefore win the vote, but then also persuade the non-persuadables to ease, to dial down their opposition to, uh, to any new state, to move the people who don't want to see a united Ireland from the column that is headed by, I, I, I would find it almost impossible to accept, into the column that is headed, uh, I wouldn't like it, but I could live with it. 
Um, so it seems to me th- th- those are those are the two tasks. With uh, with reference then to you know how you you know what sort of information can possibly be you know can you know possibly be provided to voters in in advance. This, as you say, is the the conundrum. How do you come up with a model uh, of a united Ireland if you know? a whole bunch of people who will have to live in a United Ireland if that's what happens refuse to engage perfectly logically from their point of view because they why would you engage with a process that you that you don't want to see happening so w- what we did for these set of questions then is to taking the previous framework of a an integrated united ireland or a devolved united ireland um we put uh we we you know, we put two possible scenarios to to the respondents in the poll, to the voters, and we said to them, you know, imagine that. Uh, uh, or would you would you prefer that uh, it is worked out? What a United Ireland would we, would mean in advance is worked out. Uh, it's worked out in advance of 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 a vote, so you know exactly what you were voting for. Or would you prefer essentially to have a vote on the principle of a united Ireland and then something like a constitutional convention would work out afterwards what it, uh, what, what it would mean? And the preference in both north and south clearly uh, was for them to be told exactly what type of united Ireland was on offer before the vote. Uh, nearly 7 out of 10 voters, 69% of voters in the North, agree that this should be told in advance. And a uh, slightly lower percent, 59% in, uh, in, in the Republic. Significant majority in, in the Republic say, no, let's figure it out afterwards. Let's have the vote more or less on principle. And then let's figure out what it means afterwards. That's about 30% or so uh, in the Republic, but just 15% uh, in the North. Uh, favoured that uh, that approach. So, notwithstanding the difficulties of working out what it is or what it looks like in advance, it seems that the uh, the clear wish of voters in both jurisdictions uh, is to have that presented to them so they can make a decision on a clear model uh, of a united Ireland beforehand. Yeah, and I think within that, you can um, posit that there's a certain amount of post-Brexit trauma there. We have had the recent example of a major constitutional change with either no picture or a very misleading picture being painted to the electorate and it's all turned out very differently. And that's a cautionary tale for everybody involved, particularly the people most affected by it on this island who are the people of Northern Ireland. Yeah, and in fact, the Brexit example was cited repeatedly in the focus groups as something uh, that was to be avoid it at at all costs, which still leaves you with the difficulty of designing a proposal for a united Ireland that might be acceptable to unionists were it to be passed without the input of unionists. But the uh, but the results of the uh, of the polling is 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 pretty clear on it. As I say, I think you're right uh, in that uh, that 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 was informed to some degree, uh, at least uh, by the by the Brexit experience. Well, we should say that our readers can find 
all this information and all the data and all the lovely tables and all the lovely charts and excellent analysis by Pat and others as this project continues. And it will continue going forward as well, won't it, Pat, for a little more? Yeah, we will have, um, aside from today, we will have uh, some more findings about the protocol, what people think about it north and south on Monday, further findings on Tuesday. Then we're going to take a little break for Christmas, but we'll be back in, uh, in January with um, some really interesting findings about the differences and the similarities between North and South. Yeah, I must say, I think this is an absolutely terrific project and I'm really delighted that, that the Irish Times is uh, associated with it. We will, though, leave it there for today. Uh, thanks to Arthur for joining us earlier. Thanks also to Pat, um, to Declan Conlon, our producer and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back in no time at all, but until then, have a good weekend.